Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 105. It's titled, How Corporate Profits Drive Stock Returns. In 2010, my oldest son and I took our first trip to Japan. Neither of us spoke a lick of Japanese. We, we could say yes and no. That was it. And it was a fascinating experience because we, we, this is our first exposure to the culture. But one of the challenges was finding places to eat because most Japanese don't speak English and many of the restaurants don't, that there's not English on the menus. And so we tended to gravitate, at least in the early days, to restaurants that had the model of plastic food. In other words, you could see the dishes out on the display in front of the restaurant. It was, it was plastic, but it was an amazing replica of what was available. We'd go in, and then they, some of them would have those same pictures on the, the actual menu. And so we ate at this one restaurant. Things were going well until it got time to end the meal and ask for our check. And we could see the servers on the other side of the restaurant. They were just kind of looking at us, and we were looking at them, and we, we wanted to leave. We wanted to pay. We had read in a guidebook that if you cross, your, do your in, index fingers in a cross, that that will allow the, that, that will notify people that you're ready for the check. But it was kind of an odd, an odd guest gesture. And, and so I, I made Camden do it first. He puts up his fingers, he crosses, and, and the servers still stare at us. And, and so I do it, and I do it even more. I kind of raise my hand and make my little X. And they still didn't come. And it's almost like they, they, they were trying not to laugh, but we're, we're, we're here making these Xs at them. And, and finally, for whatever reason, they came over, and we tried to communicate that we would like to check and she pointed to it that it was in the basket on the side of the table, just, just sitting there, been there the whole time. The point of the story is when you get into new situations and you're learning new things, you invariably look stupid. You look stupid when you're learning a new language. You look stupid when you're learning a new topic. I remember my first interview I, was, I studied investing as an undergraduate, and I went to an investment firm to, to have an interview, and they asked me, what does contrarian mean in the term for investing? And I had no idea. I had not heard of being contrarian, and I, and I flubbed the answer, and I didn't get the job. I looked stupid. Well, in the quest to not look stupid, when it comes to investing, I've always tried to get to the root of things, not just investing, but all topics. Try to find the shortcuts, the hacks to better understand how things work. And that's what we try to do on Money for the Rest of Us. 
And so we're going to do that when we talk about stock returns and what drives stock returns, particularly the influence of corporate profits and what drives corporate profits over time. Over the past 30 years, from 1985 through 2015, the U.S. stock market, as measured by the S&P 500 index, returned 10.4% annualized on a nominal basis and 7.8% after adjusting for inflation. Those are remarkably good returns. And if they were repeated over the next 30 years, then none of us would have to worry about saving for retirement because we would have the tailwinds of very strong stock returns on our, against our backs, just helping our portfolios move along. Now, let's see if those returns are repeatable. In order to see that, we can decompose them into the three building blocks that drive stock performance. And I've alluded to these building blocks in the past, but we're going to drill a little deeper in today's episode. The three building blocks are dividends, corporate earnings growth, and changes in valuations. Dividends represent corporate earnings that companies pay out to shareholders. And over the past 30 years, dividends represented three percentage points of the S&P 500's annualized total return. This is according to data by Research Affiliates, which is an investment management and research firm. The S&P 500 index, which is what we're going to focus on, we're focusing on U.S. stocks, U.S. large company stocks. So that 10.4% return, three percentage points was due to the dividend. Nominal corporate earnings growth, so earnings before inflation or or leaving the, the impact of inflation in, that represented 4.6 percentage points of the returns of the S&P 500 over the past 30 years. And so if investors had been willing to pay the same in 2015 for those earnings as they did in 1985, in other words, valuations hadn't changed at all, then the annualized return of U.S. large company stocks would have been that 3% dividend portion and the 4% earnings growth, and you would have had a 7.6% return. But the returns were 10.4%. And the reason why is investors were willing to pay more for those earnings in 2015 than they were in 1985. In 1985, the price-to-earnings ratios for stocks, the S&P 500, was about 11. And in 2015, it was close to 20. And so investors are willing to pay $20 for each dollar worth of earnings in 2015 as opposed to only paying 11. So that essentially almost doubling of valuations contributed 2.8 percentage points to the S&P 500 return. Stocks became more expensive. So that that's sort of decomposing the historical returns into the three building blocks. We care about what investing will or what investment returns will be going forward. We're going to, again, let's look at those three building blocks. Now, first off, the, the biggest wild card is will investors be willing to pay more for earnings 10 years from now than they do today? Well, we're at a PE of 20. We're above historical averages, so probably not willing to pay more quite likely willing to pay less, but we don't know. So we're going to simplify things and say investors are willing to, will be willing to pay the same 
10 years from now than they are today, so valuations will not increase. And so the two building blocks in that will drive performance are dividends and corporate profit growth. Now, the dividend component, in order to forecast going forward, and we're going to use a 10-year period of time, is pretty straightforward. The S&P 500's current dividend yield is about 2.1%. So that suggests dividends will contribute about 2.1 percentage points to U.S. stock returns over the next decade. That leaves this next building block, which is corporate earnings growth. And over the long term, annual real corporate earnings growth has tended to track, and by real corporate earnings growth, this is corporate earnings growth, net of inflation, those corporate profits, the growth of those over time have tended to track the per capita, so per person, gross domestic product growth, measure of the economic output, not total economic output growth, but economic output per person. So from 1986 to 2015, real per capita GDP growth was 2% annualized. And that happens to be the same as the 2% annual real corporate earnings growth. And so there's a pretty tight relationship, not just going back to 1985, but long-term historical data. And this was, this was something that Rob Arnott, who founded Research Affiliates, developed and, and, and pointed out. And it was a very keen insight because then we can look long-term and say, we know what dividend yields are. What should we assume for corporate profit growth? And generally, we would assume whatever we believe the economy will grow on a per capita basis. So in terms of nominal corporate profit growth, it would be nominal nominal per capita GDP growth. So where are we today? It's been 2% since 1985 annualized growth. But since the end of the Great Recession in 2009, real annualized growth in per capita GDP has only been 1.3%, much slower than previous economic recoveries. So if corporate earnings grow at the pace they've done over the past 20 years, 2% real, and then if we adjust for inflation, let's assume 2.6% annual inflation, which is in line with what it's been over the past 20 years, that would mean 4.6% earnings growth plus 2.1% dividends in terms of the dividend yields, and that would get us a 6.7% annualized return nominal over the next 10 years for U.S. stocks. If real corporate earnings growth is only 1.3%, as it has been since the end of the Great Recession, we use the same inflation assumption, then returns will be 6% annualized, would be the 2.1% dividend yield, plus 1.3% real corporate earnings growth, and 2.6% inflation. Now, both of those assumptions assume that valuations will stay the same, that valuations will not get cheaper. Investors are willing to pay less for stocks because the corporate earnings growth is slower. If investors are willing to pay less or want to pay less, then returns over the next decade will be much lower. Now, the challenge with corporate earnings growth or estimating it is it, it's not static from year to year. It tends to be quite volatile. Since the end of the Great Recession, nominal S&P earnings have grown at a 12% annualized rate, according to FactSet. 
but it has slowed markedly over the past couple of years. FactSet reports overall S&P earnings grew only 0.5% in the calendar year ending 2015 compared to the year prior. And on a per share basis, S&P 500 earnings in the fourth quarter of 2015 declined 4.2% from Q4 2014. Now, while much of the earnings decline can be attributed to falling oil prices as energy companies' earnings got crushed, only 3 out of 10 S&P 500 sectors posted positive earnings growth in the fourth quarter. That was telecom, healthcare, and consumer discretionary. Most of the sectors showed earnings decline. So with U.S. corporate earnings growth recently stagnating after posting double-digit annualized gains coming out of the recession and with overall economic growth as measured by per capita GDP at a subpar level, level, what is a reasonable estimate for U.S. corporate earnings growth over the next decade? Will it be closer to the 1.3% real or the 2% real? For that, we have to break down corporate profits in even more detail. What is it that actually drives corporate profits on a, on a macro-type basis? After the Great Recession, I, when I was a professional money manager and I was looking for other experts just to help me better understand what had happened and help me prepare better for, in the future. And one of the firms I came across was called the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. And this was a firm that had been around, I believe, since the late 20s or early 1930s. And they focused on what was called the profit perspective. They looked at big macroeconomic elements in the economy, corporate investment, consumer spending, and they pulled them all together and were able to come up with a profit formula that says, here are the macro drivers of corporate profitability. They have a fascinating paper that they wrote. It's written by David Levy, Martin Farnham, and Samira Rajan. It's called Where Profits Come From, and they liken it to a factory, and they show the different inputs and how it's all related. If you're a member of my Insider's Guide, you will have gotten a copy, a link to that paper. If you're not a member of that Insider's Guide, you can sign up at moneyfortherestofus.net. And if you're a U.S.-based listener, you you can get the paper right now by just texting the word earnings, E-A-R-N-I-N-G-S, to the number 44222. You send your text, reply with an email. I'll send that paper to you immediately. But it's a fascinating piece written as simply as, as possible given the complicated topic. But what we find is that profits over time are a function of changes. The change in profits is a change to these broad macro variables. Last episode, I talked about how every dollar spent is, is some corporate company's earnings. So when, when I go out and I buy groceries from a, the grocery store, that, that the dollar I spend is that particular store's earnings. When another company buys something from another business, they're, they're essentially earnings. And so when we look at what are the primary drivers of corporate profitability or the change in corporate profitability, the, the main driver is corporate investment. Investment in equipment, software, structures, and inventory. 
And so when businesses are going out and they're investing in these type of things, they're making capital expenditures that actually contributes to overall aggregate profits. The other thing is what are consumers doing? What are consumers spending? And so how is their spending changing? So we're talking about growth in corporate profits. So not the absolute level, but the change in corporate profits from one period to the next. That change is driven by the change in corporate investment in equipment and structures and inventory. And it's changed or it's driven by the change in household savings. If the household savings rate goes up from one period to the next, that means corporate profits will go down because all things being equal, households are spending less money buying things that influences corporate profits. And so that you, we can look at, and it talks again about this paper, and it's a pretty good analogy, the change in household savings. The third thing is the change in government savings. To what extent is the budget deficit increasing or shrinking? If the budget deficit is shrinking, so the government is is raising more tax revenue and the amount that it's spending, maybe it's going up, but the deficit itself, the amount of additional spending going out into the economy, if that deficit is shrinking, that also influences corporate profits. And finally, the change in the trade deficit. If the trade deficit is increasing, that means more business and household spending is benefiting foreign corporations. So that's impacting the corporate profits of, of domestic businesses. So those are the four drivers, change in corporate investment, change in household savings, change in government savings or the budget deficit, and the change in the trade deficit. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner, 
And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So back after the 28 and kind of the 2010 period, I, we, I had essentially hired the Levy Forecasting Center and I studied their reports. And what I was trying to do was trying to, how can I calculate these numbers myself? And I, I had these spreadsheets and I just updated the spreadsheet. I hadn't done it since 2012, trying to look at these major drivers. And what I used was the National Income and Products Account. This is, this is essentially statistical data put together by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, where you can look at how much our business is investing, what's the change in household savings, what about the change in the budget deficit. So it's a pretty complicated spreadsheet. And what, what it shows is the, NIP, the NIPA or the Bureau of Economic Analysis, they produce a number where they show corporate profits, both public and private. They combine together. And the conclusion is profits peaked in the fourth quarter of 2014, which is exactly what you're showing in the public equity market, the U.S. stock market, as I talked about with fact sets. Since the fourth quarter 2015, profits, as purported by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, have fallen 9%. And, and this, the specific profits would be the profits after tax with an inventory valuation adjustment and a capital consumption adjustment, so the little adjustments that you make, as well as taking into account dividends, they have fallen 9%. What are the drivers of that? Well, corporate investment has slowed to stagnated. Businesses are investing less. Much of that has to do with energy companies pulling back investment as oil prices have fallen, but it has stagnated. And households are saving more and spending less than they were several years ago. That has an influence on corporate profits. The government deficit is falling. So the budget deficit shrinks. That's less money from governments going out into the economy or net, net flows from the government into the economy, that impacts corporate profits, and the trade deficit is growing. So those things all come together and are driving corporate profits. Now, it would be great if, and what I thought, I could do this analysis quarterly. I'd be able to, to factor these things and, and be able to forecast the stock market and, and everything. That'd be great. Well, it turns out that the government's always re, kind of redoing the data, and there's a delay. There's a quarterly delay. You don't get the data as quickly as you can. And that's why it's interesting that the Levy, Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, they call it the profits perspective because that's what it is. It's a perspective. It's understanding these big picture drivers, but they're not great for short-term forecasting. But it's helpful to know what is it that's driving the drop in corporate profitability. And my takeaway is, unless businesses really start to increase their investing in in capital expenditures, and we'll look and we'll see, we're going to break it down even more granular, that they're not. 
But that's what needs to happen for corporate profitability to continue to expand because essentially corporate profits are shrinking. And that will influence, as we've seen, that's one of the key building blocks of the stock market. We have the dividends, but if corporate profits stop growing because companies aren't investing, because households are saving more, because the trade deficit is widening and the government deficit is shrinking, that does not bode well for the U.S. stock market. I recently listened to a, a webinar by the, the, one of the research services I, I pay for called Ned Davis Research, and it was on what companies do with cash. One thing companies can do, and here we're talking about publicly traded companies, is they can invest, like we've talked about. They can buy property, plant, and equipment, and that drives corporate profitability. But that's only one thing they can do. Those, those things are called capital expenditures. They can return capital to shareholders through dividends. They can increase dividends, or they can buy back shares. That's just, that's, those are some things they can do. They can retire debt so they can pay down debt. They can use their cash to purchase another company, mergers and acquisitions. They can hire workers and to, and, or increase worker compensation, or they can keep it. And when we look at what corporations have been doing the last several years, they've not been doing capital expenditures. Capital expenditures fell 8% year over year. And energy capital expenditures within the energy sector fell 31%. Now, this is public data. This is the stock market data, the the companies within the S&P 500. But it corroborates with what we're seeing in the national income and products account data, that investment by companies is stagnating. Now, the reason why corporate profitability hasn't plummeted in the U.S., the U.S. stock market, is because we have close to record stock buybacks. $450 billion in stock buybacks in the fourth quarter of 2015. And what that does is it it boosts earnings per share. And there's a tight correlation between stock buybacks and appreciation for stocks. Ned Davis did an analysis, and, and they looked at non-financial corporate net share repurchases, because some, some companies are issuing stocks, some companies are not. But when we look at non-financial companies, so non-banks, what's their net share repurchases as a percent of gross domestic product? Right now, that's about 3%. And so buybacks are very, very high, close to a record buybacks. And when the buybacks are above 2.5%, the economy, five years later, has, or not the economy, the stock market, the S&P 500, has increased 10% when it's at this higher level. Now, when it's below 0.5%, so net share repurchases are below 0.5% of gross domestic product, which means share repurchases are low, five years later, the stock market, the S&P 500, has appreciated 82%. So what that shows, when share repurchases are low as a percent of the economy, but then they start to accelerate, that can drive positive stock returns or, or above average return. When, they're, when they've peaked or they're high at a higher level as they are now, then the stock market tends to slow. And so that's a key component. Now, dividends are also at a record. So companies, corporations are using cash to increase their dividends, to pay their dividends, $411 billion 
of dividends paid in the fourth quarter, according to CompuStat and Ned Davis. 56% of S&P 500 companies have dividends greater than the 10-year Treasury yield. I've mentioned the closest to record stock buybacks. Companies are paying down debt. That has increased. In, in fact, over the, after the financial crisis, the amount of debt, companies went and borrowed a lot, but now they're paying down the debt that reduces future profitability. We've had record M&A activity, so companies are trying to expand or increase profitability by buying other companies and then reducing costs. But as they reduce costs, that might help that particular company, but then they're spending less in terms of the economy. So M&A activity does not help overall corporate profitability for the overall stock market. I've mentioned how capital expenditures have fallen 8%, and and that doesn't help corporate profits. But the final thing that corporations could do is they can just keep the cash on their balance sheet and do nothing. And companies' cash balances have been increasing. U.S. companies have $4.2 trillion of cash on their balance sheet. So let's summarize where we are. We've looked at the building blocks that drive stock returns. You have the dividend yield or the dividends. You have corporate profit growth. And you have the change in valuations. We've looked at, on a broad macro basis, the things that drive corporate profits. Corporate investments, the change in household savings, the change in the government budget deficit, and the change in for, or the trade deficit. Those drive broad macro profitability. And we've seen that profits are starting to stagnate because investment is, 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 has stagnated. And because the savings, household savings is going up, the trade deficit is expanding, and the budget deficit is shrinking. We've looked at things individual corporations can do in terms of their individual profitability. Certainly, buying back shares increases earnings per share, increases their per share profitability. But long term, what's going to drive corporate profitability in aggregate is if companies increase their capital expenditures and in that, on that token, they're not. And so if they're not investing in the future and if they're just doing M&A activity and trying to cut costs and just buying back stock or just holding the cash, future profitability will not get to that 2% real growth rate that we had over the past 20 years. It'll stay lower. What do we do about that? Well, first, we can invest outside of the U.S., areas where Profit growth is higher where sales are increasing. The developed market outside of the U.S., Europe, and Asia has higher sales growth and has had higher profit growth recently. So that's an area. We can invest in emerging markets. Now, emerging markets is interesting because there the valuations are much less expensive than U.S. stock market. But profits have struggled recently because many some emerging markets, such as Brazil, are in recession. But there is an area where, as profits rebound, you have a tailwind of more attractive valuations. We can have other portfolio drivers, not just stocks and not just bonds. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I've put together model portfolios for conservative, moderate, and more aggressive investors. It comprises of 10 holdings, 7 exchange-traded funds, 1 exchange-traded note, and 2 mutual funds. And in those model portfolios, uh, they're underweight, the U.S. stock market, 
They're overweight emerging markets and other other developed markets, but they also have other portfolio drivers such as master limited partnerships, real estate investment trust, bank loans, some non-investment grade bonds, and there you can broaden out and and diversify. But ultimately, we can't have a U.S.-centric portfolio because here the profit drivers suggest profits going forward, profit growth going forward is going to be lower, and that will mean lower returns for the stock market than we've had over the past 20 years. Now, will valuations change? We don't know. But that's ultimately... (laughs) is the takeaway is things look a little worrisome for U.S. corporate profit growth unless they start increasing their investment in terms of their capital expenditures. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. I encourage you to read that What Drives Profit paper. You can can get that by signing up for my insider's guide or if you are well, you can go to moneyfortherestofus.net, and, and it'll be in the show notes, so you can download it there. But if you want to get it immediately, if you're out in the car, just text the word EARNINGS to the number 44222. If you'd like to get more information on these, these model portfolios that I have on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, you can get more information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.